You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the pleasure of talking about where does osteoarthritis pain come from? Now, managing osteoarthritis pain is a great challenge for many of you, whether you are a patient or a clinician. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are often used despite their potential risks associated with long-term use. In recent years, new advances have led to the expiration of centrally acting medications, such as duloxetine for osteoarthritis pain. Despite this, those with osteoarthritis continue to suffer from inadequate pain relief, and many in the clinical community see pain as a continuing unmet need. By better understanding the pathways that influence pain, we might be able to better treat osteoarthritis pain by identifying potential therapeutic targets. And on this episode of Joint Action, we are joined by Anne-Marie Malfay to discuss where osteoarthritis pain comes from. Anne-Marie's research focuses on pain in osteoarthritis. She is the Professor of Internal Medicine and the George W. Stuppy, MD Chair of Arthritis at Rush University in Chicago. Anne-Marie received her medical degree in 1989 and her PhD in 1994, both from Ghent University in Belgium. Her early research training focused on cartilage metabolism in osteoarthritis. Her postdoctoral training at the Kennedy Institute of Rheumatology in London 
focused on the role of cytokines in inflammatory arthritis. In 2001, she joined the pharmaceutical industry, joining a team for the development of disease-modifying osteoarthritis drugs. Since 2009, Anne-Marie has been at Rush University and established a research group studying pain in osteoarthritis using animal models. Her group studies the relationship between joint damage and the neurobiologic processes that underlie osteoarthritis pain with the long-term goal to develop more efficacious and safer analgesics and disease-modifying osteoarthritis drugs. Hello, Anne-Marie, and welcome to the Joint Action Podcast. Good morning, David. I'm very pleased to be here and to see you in Sydney. It's a pleasure to have you along. Now, the first part of the show, I usually try to get to know you a little bit better, both for the listeners, but also for myself. But in the first instance, can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like for you? Well, I was trained as a medical doctor and I did rheumatology training, but very young, at a very young age, I was actually lured into, into the lab. Literally, it was in the basement uh, of the rheumatology division where I trained in Ghent in Belgium. And so I disappeared into the lab and I essentially never came back out. So I really trained as a retrained later as a basic scientist and I did a a PhD in biochemistry and you know I find it endlessly fascinating to do this job and on a typical day unfortunately as a scientist I am almost never in the lab anymore at this point people in my lab they joke that they don't I don't even know which floor it is on which is probably true but I I really miss going to the lab Uh, so I spent all my time in the office pre-COVID I would travel a lot which I would go to conferences and meet with people everywhere around the world but in the last 18 months like most people I've actually been bound to this chair here and I do I do office work so typically in a day what I What I try to do, I'm not a morning person, so I do come quite early, actually, but I do all the sort of menial, boring things first. I do emails and administrative things so that uh, by the time it's it's lunchtime or so, I have that behind me. And then I always look forward to a whole long afternoon of doing exactly what what I like doing, which is reading papers, writing papers, meet with people in the lab. I have one-on-one meetings with them quite often. Uh, There are about 10 people in the lab, so that takes quite a lot of time. I, I like to mentor young researchers, and so I will meet with them either live or or more recently on zoom Uh, i do a lot of editorial work also so i do review a lot of paper i'm an associate editor for two journals so i review papers i review grants so that's really what i do mostly on on a day-to-day basis i i i handle about five to ten papers a week of other people so that's something that I do. And then Wednesdays, like today is a Wednesday, is actually one of my favorite days in the week because then we have our weekly lab meetings. And that's always very exciting because that's where uh, the people in the lab present their ongoing results, new findings, and we discuss them. So we just had one today and that's something I actually always really look forward to. So that's that's it. It's unfortunately quite a sedentary life, especially now at, at this time. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, Amaria. It's a, it's a wonderful explanation. I might just dig into a couple of those topics a little bit more if that's all right. But 
really interested in, I guess, the, the journey that's taken you from the basement, so to speak, where you were presumably in the lab the majority of the time, to now where you are predominantly in the office and meet with people in the lab face to face. How long did that process take? And, you know, what led to that? And obviously you miss it, but are there other elements of it that you think you're potentially more influential in that still allow you a presence in the lab without you physically being there? Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a good point. First of all, it took a very long time. Just if you talk about timing. So I, I did lab work for a very long time myself. And because I changed jobs quite often, for example, I spent almost 10 years working in the pharmaceutical industry in, in the first decade of this century. You know, there I started off again being in the lab quite often. When there are new techniques, up until quite recently, I would often force myself to learn them. I think that's quite important that you really know. It's only really very recently that the really new techniques, I don't do them myself anymore. Sometimes also because it's very precise when we do surgeries on mice, for example, to model osteoarthritis. And these are very uh, fine surgeries uh, under a microscope often where we look, we also dissect nervous tissues. And so I say we, because they do it. I have not actually done this because I don't actually see it anymore myself at this point. So at some point you have to let go. But I do believe that, and I think this is true for many basic researchers, that if they have done it for so many years, that they really understand specific difficulties. And so I do spend a lot of time speaking with people and going over experiments and asking them details where they really feel that I have I have done this in the past a lot, you know, that I, I often tell them, you know, don't, don't worry, I know how difficult this is. Um, and, and that this very often fails because I, I think a lot of people do not always realize how many experiments in a lab really fail. So, and I do, I do pop in there and, and have a look at what the different people are doing and connect uh, people with each other in the lab where I see that this particular person is very good at, at specific techniques. Everybody has their strengths, some do surgeries, some do behavioral assays in mice. Others are, are very good with molecular biology, which is very specific. So you can connect people with each other. They have their different personalities. And when you stand back, you can actually sort of have a, an overview and see this and, and, and bring these specific skills together. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I might just pick up on one more point while we're doing this, is that the, the time that you spent in industry is obviously a relatively unique experience for someone who's now predominantly in uh, university and um, academia. Yeah. What, what particular skills, strengths, techniques do you think you picked up there that you found particularly helpful in the academic space? The main one, there are two actually main ones. And uh, I think is that an industry is very result driven. Right. And you are always accountable. One is always accountable to management. The bottom line is that something has to happen at the end. And so one has to be very result driven with timelines and be very 
strict following these timelines, one has to be able to cut one's losses uh, if something doesn't go anywhere. And in order to meet these timelines, that's actually point number two, is that the work is very team oriented in industry. And that I have really learned a lot uh, from when setting my own lab up here is that our lab is really team driven in that, you know, it's not about this one star person. It's not about me. It's not about one, the one person who's the best is that we all really work together. So when we, when we actually publish a paper, one can often see that almost everybody is on that paper uh, if they've really done something. And, and we really can all of a sudden, just like we had to do when I worked for industry, say now we are very close here with this paper. We will all be benefit if we can bring this out or this particular grant, and then everybody drops everything and they work on that to, to bring that together. And that's how we worked in, in industry. And, and so we do this here and it, it seems to work and, and, and everybody seems to enjoy it actually. Yeah, I think when there's a team working together and there's a lot of collaborative intent and you have similar goals, there's I think a, a lot of enthusiasm and yes. positive culture that gets brought to that work environment. Now, just digressing from work for a moment, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? Oh, well, my the main thing that I like to do when I come home is that I really do not want to look at screens. So uh, we barely watch any television at home. Or I don't even want to go to the cinema anymore. Uh, while I love reading, I find it currently hard even to read because there's just simply too much screen staring going on. So we, I, I listen to music. Pre-COVID, we would go to concerts uh, all the time. And nowadays, we actually always listen to the radio and we, we put on, we get old, old records out and we listen. We basically listen to music almost nonstop. Wonderful. And what sort of music is, I guess, your, your favorite genre? Classical music, actually. Yeah. Listen mostly to classical music. Although uh, my husband, he has a huge collection of old vinyl records. And so one game that we played in the, during the whole lockdown in, in the past year, and it was fun. We, we brought them all out from the basement. And it's a very, you know, it's his collection. And I would say it's eclectic. It's, it's more than classical music. It's all sorts. And so we would play this game where we would take the top record and the first one in the stack and and we had to listen to at least one side like it or not so we went through hundreds of records over many many weeks and i discovered a lot of music that i don't like <laughs> but it was fun mm -hmm. Well, hopefully some music that you did like as well. But, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Marie, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Yeah, that's a difficult question. So uh, the first word that came to my mind when I saw this question was relentless. But then I also I decided that, you know, uh, to focus on, on uh, positives. <laughs> You know, there, there's plenty of negatives, but I'll, I'll so the, the positives, I would say, are thoughtful, independent, loyal and optimistic. I think if you work on osteoarthritis, you have to remain optimistic and you have to uh, be relentless. So you have to keep going <laughs> to be tenacious, essentially. 
Yeah, they're all they're all wonderful qualities. And as you say, I think for someone who's engaged in the osteoarthritis space, some of them are probably more important than others. And I, I would have thought, as you said, optimistic is incredibly important, but I would have thought to me, relentless is actually a very positive quality um, because I think in this, in this space, I think a lot of people sometimes lack for resilience um, and they take uh, rejection, which is quite common in our space, whether that be through manuscripts or grants or whatever it might be, uh, in a bad way. True, and it's one of the hardest things about, I mean, I think our job, whether it's clinical or basic research, is, is totally and utterly fascinating. But I think very many people do really not realize how we deal with rejection and failure a lot a lot experiments fail and then when they work then you write them and and they get rejected <laughs> or people you know i'm always when you go to concerts and musicians at the end of a concert they get standing ovations and everybody claps and we get most of the time we just get rejection <laughs> you know and <laughs> it's very rare that all room stands up and claps right uh so it, it takes a special person to keep doing that i think <laughs> yeah there was a there was a really wonderful moment in the wimbledon final with the women's final recently where the um, person who was responsible for making the astrazeneca vaccine stood up and got a standing ovation and had a standing ovation i saw that too that was wonderful huh? yeah yeah you know huge huge credit to them and you know, wonderful accolades for what they've been able to achieve to help us get out of this pandemic now the main content of today is obviously picking your brain as an international expert in osteoarthritis pain about where that pain might come from and particularly your insights that you've gained from many years working in this space but in the first instance, I might just try to create a little bit of context uh, as to how osteoarthritis pain is characterized, uh, just to give us, I guess, a broad overview of that idea. So for, for patients who have osteoarthritis, really uh, patients and everyone working in this space really has to realize that osteoarthritis is a disease that is chronic progressive and that can take years to even decades to, to keep progressing. And so the character of the pain and the character of the disease is also progressive and can really change over time. And it's been maybe only about 20 years or so that people have really started to document what that pain exactly looks like. And, and so people really see that it is progressive and very typical in early on in the disease, patients will say that this pain has a mechanical character. And so what that means is that it will be brought on by specific activities, loading on, on the knee, for example, people will say that it hurts when they go up the stairs. And I always give the example about, I actually became interested in osteoarthritis because of my grandmother. She had very severe generalized osteoarthritis when I was a child. And she, she would actually plan her activities upstairs so that she'd only have to go upstairs once in the morning and once in the afternoon. So make the bed, do other things, wash all in this one grouping so that she could avoid avoid going up the stairs actually because that was so painful so then typically as the disease progresses what will happen is that this pain can can start radiating outside the affected joint and then it can become uh, gradually more severe and people with 
with more end-stage osteoarthritis can have really pain, pain flares at night. They can wake up with severe pain. And, and so that's the pain experience to a patient. But then as a, a clinician or a researcher, one can also start detecting specific signs that come with this pain, which maybe we can talk about the mechanisms of that a bit later. But there's this particular technique that's called quantitative sensory testing. And so people can, for example, see what a pain pressure threshold would be. So uh, what, what, what a researcher can do is, is really put a certain amount of pressure, say, on the, on the affected joint, on the knee, and see how much pressure it takes for pain to be felt by the patient. And so typically in a patient with osteoarthritis, these pain pressure thresholds will be lower. And that's called allodynia, actually. So there's a sensitivity to mechanical pain. And, and not only is this present at the, at the site of the affected joint, but this can actually be present in other places. So people who have pain, who have very bad osteoarthritis in the left knee, for example, will have lowered pain pressure thresholds in the left knee, but they can also have this in the left ankle or even in the right ankle. So uh, there is a sort of generalized hypersensitivity that occurs. And, and that is um, more recently, this has been very much uh, appreciated actually by the osteoarthritis research community. Now, it, what's very interesting is that pain experience is of course very individual to each patient. And, and the way this progresses over time is not as clean as I just sort of listed it, but this can be really affected by very many different things by the patient themselves, by factors such as obesity or genetic factors, because people experience pain uh, individually very differently based on certain genetic variations, uh, difference between just simple things, whether one is male or female. There are many different things, comorbidities people can have as people age, People can develop things like diabetes and other comorbidities accompanying illnesses that affect the pain experience. Wonderful. That's a fantastic explanation. And one of the, one of the obviously, assessments for the quantitative sensory testing that you brought out is to look at uh, sensitization. Um, and can you just tell us the difference between peripheral and central sensitization and what actually is changing to occur with the peripheral and sensitization from a biologic functional perspective? Yeah, so to really grasp that one has to first have a, a little bit an idea of the very basic template of how pain is sensed. And uh, it's actually a very simple thing. Pain is something that is very important to all of us. It's a basic survival mechanism. It's what tells you that you shouldn't touch a hot flame or, or whack yourself with a hammer, say, because, you know, it hurts and, and you can break something. <laughs> so there are specialized neurons that innervate our skin and the joints and they they are um, specifically equipped to, to detect these potential harmful uh, stimuli, such as uh, high heat, for example. And so these specialized neurons, sensory neurons are called nociceptors. And so they, they are very abundant everywhere in, in the body, especially in the skin, but also in the joints. 
and they innervate different tissues in the joints. And their cell bodies are, are in the periphery. They are located in specialized organs that are called dorsal root ganglia. And so the cell bodies are there. And so they, they actually basically innervate the peripheral tissue. And they also send an axon, it's called, to, to the spinal cord, to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And, and there they make a synapse with what's called secondary or second order neurons that then take the pain signal up to higher regions of the brain. So that's the central. So what happens is in just an acute uh, potential harmful situation is that one can touch a hot flame, for example, and there's a very rapid uh, signal in the form of an electrical, an action potential. So it's an electrical stimulus. So it goes very, very fast. The signal transfers to the dorsal root ganglion and from there to the spinal cord and higher regions of the brain where you can then uh, consciously detect that and interpret it as pain and then very rapidly have a reflex. You withdraw your hand and that's it. Now, in, in, when you have a, a, a more chronic disease, such as osteoarthritis, where you have ongoing changes in the joint and in different tissues in the joint, is that you have continuous, what's called continuous peripheral nociceptive input. So per, uh, continuous pain triggers that go, there's, there's a constant barrage. And so what happens is that the pain signal gets amplified actually. And this can happen in the periphery. So that now means that there are changes in these, in these dorsal root ganglia so that, that the, the threshold for activation of these neurons lowers. So we are all very familiar with that. For example, in the case of sunburn, when, when you have sunburn, when you normally touch your skin, that doesn't hurt. But when that skin is burned by the sun, that really hurts. So uh, that's, that's called, that's actually peripheral sensitization because these nerves there are sort of on high alarm and and they tell you so again this is a, a really protective mechanism because what it what it does it makes sure that you don't keep rubbing that skin that is sunburned and so you actually allow that skin to heal so again it's a protective mechanism now when it all takes too long and it keeps going then you start also having really profound changes in the central nervous system. And this can happen at different levels. It, it happens in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, but then it can also start happening um, higher in the brain at different levels of the brain. And that's what's then called central sensitization. And in some instances, and it's not very clear yet when this particularly happens and to whom that particularly happens, but so it can happen actually that this, that this constant input from the joint and the peripheral input versus the central sensitization mechanisms are uncoupled. And, and then those are probably um, unfortunate for, for people where this happens, where, where, this, where there's this uncoupling and there's no obvious connection anymore between the pain and what's really going on in the periphery. That's a fantastic explanation. Hopefully uh, helps people to understand where their pain may be coming from. Now, in the context of osteoarthritis, whether it be through changes in the periphery or centrally, are those changes reversible? I, th I think that we have a lot more evidence. So first, I would like to say that in osteoarthritis, the, the good news is that in the vast majority of people, it would appear 
that the main driver of chronic pain comes from the periphery. The main drivers come from the periphery. So the best argument that one can make for that is that if somebody has very bad knee osteoarthritis and they get a new knee, they get total knee replacement, that in the vast majority of people, around 80% of people, that actually effectively takes away the pain. But not just that. So one can detect measures of or signs of peripheral and central sensitization can be detected, as I talked about earlier, with the quantitative sensory testing. So if people have these lowered pain pressure thresholds we talked about, is that it's also becoming clear that if one takes away the diseased, so to speak, joints, that these measures are also reversible. And there's some very uh, interesting work that has been done where people do uh, brain imaging and they have really seen that people with chronic pain and people with chronic low back pain, people with knee osteoarthritis can have real changes uh, that can be uh, detected in specific regions in the brain by, say, by functional MRI. And here again, these changes are actually often reversible. There's sometimes a, a quote that I, I look at, so that I think is applicable here. So um, I, I guess you're familiar with uh, Ramon y Cajal, who, who was a Spanish uh, scientist who is often credited to be the first neuroscientist. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize in 1906. For so he basically mapped all neurons in the brain and he made these beautiful uh, drawings, art of neurons. And, and he, for the first time, described what, what's called this uh, synaptic plasticity. So when one talks about the nervous system, whether it's peripheral or, or central, the one thing that is really striking is, is a tremendous plasticity. It changes all the time. And he was one of the first ones more than 100 years ago, or the first one to really appreciate that. And there's this fantastic quote by him that says, um, every man, if he so wishes, can become the sculptor of his own brain. And, and I think that's a very positive message, because if, if the brain can be trained to learn chronic pain, I think that the brain can also be trained to unlearn it. Uh, and, and this plasticity has been quite well described centrally. Peripherally, it's less clear at this time. Yeah. Wonderful. Now, with that plasticity in mind and the wonderful quote that you just spoke about and thinking about the pain that comes from osteoarthritis and the work that you've done in the lab, what treatments are currently available to help modify that pain? And what ways do you think we should be modifying those treatments based upon insights that you've gained from the lab? Mm. So the treatments, unfortunately, that are currently available to people are quite limited. So pharmacological treatments, the standard pain treatment is, is actually non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And overall, they, their efficacy is, is moderate, at least. Over a long time, especially in, in people who are getting older, come with a lot of side effects. They're hard to tolerate for gastrointestinal side effects. And then many people resort to opiates, but it's actually been shown that opiates, apart from all the unwarranted side effects and, and the uh, risk for uh, addiction, 
It's also been shown that they are probably not even that efficacious in, in uh, osteoarthritis. So the, the pharmacological arsenal is actually not big for osteoarthritis. And, and so there's a real need for the development of more targeted therapies. And so your question was, you know, what could they be? So it, I, I am personally very optimistic that we can really focus on the periphery here, because as we've already discussed, there is a lot of clinical evidence that, that there is a very strong peripheral drive to the chronic pain in osteoarthritis. And so using mouse models, the, the main lessons that we are currently learning in our lab and in, in other laboratories using mouse and rat models is that, again, that there is this tremendous neuroplasticity that is going on. We've already talked about neuroplasticity in the brain, but it turns out actually that there is also this tremendous neuroplasticity in the joints. These observations are quite newer. So there's actually neuroplasticity at different levels in the joint. And, and, and using mouse models, one can really look at that in great detail. So briefly, these three levels of neuroplasticity, there are three levels of neuroplasticity are first as a functional neuroplasticity. So if you, if you look at that, you can, you can develop, we have developed these neurobiological methods to look at activity of joint uh, afferents, they're called, uh, so the, the sensory nerves that innervate the joint in a mouse. And so what we see that in the course of osteoarthritis, there are specific nociceptors that are becoming really sensitive to specific stimuli. So we can squeeze the knee of a mouse with osteoarthritis, and then we can go look at the cell bodies in those dorsal root ganglia. And then we can really see that there are nerves there that are now reacting to that squeeze that don't react in healthy mouse joints. So that's what we call functional neuroplasticity. So we can then go look, well, what causes this and what sensitizes these specific neurons? And for that, we can, we can do molecular studies. So that's the second level of, of plasticity is a molecular plasticity that is going on. So we really can see now that the molecular phenotype, as we call it, of these neurons completely changes in the course of osteoarthritis. So these, these nerves start expressing completely different molecules and, and they can have specific receptors that were not there or that are not there in a healthy joint. It sounds complex, but it's actually something that we can leverage because we can now go after these specific receptors and maybe selectively target these specific receptors. And that would then maybe lead to potential drug development. But really the most fascinating thing that we are finding is, an, is a, a very profound anatomical neuroplasticity. So what we are seeing is that uh, if you have an, a healthy mouse joint, then there are specific nociceptors that are innervating specific tissues in the joint. The synovium, for example, cartilage does not have any neurons that has been well described over many decades now. But what we are seeing is that as the joint remodels, is that there are new nociceptors that are sprouting in places where there shouldn't be any. And so in the, the subchondral bone, for example, which is the bone that is just underneath the cartilage, is now starting to remodel 
and there are channels in that subchondral bone where new nociceptors, new nerves are sprouting. So one of the things that we are trying to do in the lab is to really uh, characterize in great detail where these nerves are exactly, what type of nerves, what exactly do they express molecularly and how do they functionally change in the course of osteoarthritis. And so in that way, we hope that we could start really targeting very specifically those nerves that are in the right place to cause the pain of osteoarthritis. And yes, this is in mice, but this can be validated in humans um, also. Now, that's wonderful. And it's really exciting to see such developments happening. And from the viewpoint of, you mentioned the, the anatomic changes that are occurring within the nerves. From a molecular standpoint, are there particular molecules that you think are particularly exciting that might be better targeted towards some of those changes that are occurring that are pathologic as opposed to physiologic and normally functional? Whether these molecules have been understood and better developed and, and targeted with current treatments, or should we be looking at new waves of treatments coming through to specifically target those molecules? And if you want to talk about, you know, things like nerve growth factor and trap kinase and other things there, that, that would be great. So let's talk first about nerve growth factor. That, um, so just to give some background to that, nerve growth factor is a specific growth factor that, as the name says, you know, in, in embryos actually um, is, is really essential for the growth of sensory nerves. And it was discovered about 20 years ago that in an adult organism, nerve growth factor is key for pain. And when you inject nerve growth factor, people have actually done that in the skin of humans that causes rapid pain, but also long lasting pain. People have really in the past 15 years have started making antibodies to neutralize uh, the effect of nerve growth factor. And nerve growth factor causes a lot of its pain producing effect through binding the receptor that is called TRIC-A, tropomyosin receptor kinase A. And so when NGF binds this receptor called TRIC-A, that is actually what leads to sensitization and pain. And so when antibodies are being given that sequester nerve growth factor, then this binding cannot occur. And uh, there's been a lot of excitement in the past decade with antibodies such as uh, tenezumab and fascinumab made by uh, Regeneron. So a very large clinical development program exists uh, for, for these antibodies, and they hold tremendous promise for uh, the treatment of pain in osteoarthritis. Unfortunately, binding or sequestering nerve growth factor comes with an, an unanticipated side effect in that during these very large clinical trials, uh, it was observed that quite a few people actually, depending on the trials, develop what's called rapidly progressive osteoarthritis. Uh, so for some reason that is currently not at all understood, people who, who receive these antibodies would all of a sudden develop a lot of pain and very rapidly progressive osteoarthritis that actually necessitated replacing the joint. Unfortunately, the mechanisms of that are not understood. Obviously, there's lots of theories that are around, and you may not necessarily want to expand on this, 
as to why that rapidly progressive osteoarthritis may occur, including, you know, co-administration with anti-inflammatories, people having some pain relief and being able to increase their physical activity, their joint not necessarily being functional uh, to undertake those loads. But there's also probably more interesting theories about, you know, the role that this may have physiologically as nerve growth factor, particularly in the subchondral bone. What, what are your thoughts and, you know, how, how do we best continue to explore that area because, you know, it's obviously on the cusp of either FDA approval or not for those agents. And there's been, as you mentioned, decades of work gone into that space uh, and lots of insights that we've gained. But I think the critical insight is how do we best identify those people who are really at risk of that? And what is it that they're at risk from? Exactly. And I just want to let you know that we actually are about to start a whole research project on this again in mice. So going back to an, to an earlier question, so that you asked, you said, are there specific things that you can target specifically in joints with osteoarthritis? So going back to this whole neuroplasticity thing is that a joint with osteoarthritis is different than a healthy joint, right? So there are nerves in different places and nerve growth factor itself is probably not present in a healthy joint. So it's, it's something that is being made by a joint that has osteoarthritis. And it's our hypothesis actually that it's possible that nerve growth factor is what is uh, responsible for the, the sprouting of the new nerves in the joints that we have seen although that has not been proven yet, but, and it's entirely possible. And, and that there is some nice work out there that suggests that these new nerves that are growing and nerve growth factor itself may actually really be very important for joint health. So they may really have a homeostatic role. So if we see that there is subchondral bone remodeling, for example, as very much as a part of osteoarthritis, and there are nerves that are sprouting, then these nerves feel the pain. And as we've already discussed, the pain itself has a protective role, but then there are also nerves that are growing. And it's quite clear actually that nerves also have what's called a trophic role in a joint. So the nerves may be there because they help bone, especially maintain its integrity. And there are groups that have studied that you really need new nerve growth, for example, in models of fracture repair in a mouse. So it's entirely possible that we really need those new nerves, not just to feel pain, but also to keep the joint healthy. Now, again, that sounds like, well, then maybe this is not such a great pathway to target, but I actually think it is. It's just that going back to what we already talked about, these nerves are not all created equal. There are different types of nerves. And now with very new technologies, people, people can really, and we do that too, you can really start to, in great detail, characterize these different nociceptors at a molecular level. And then it turns out that, you know, up until only a few years ago, people would say there are only two types of nociceptors, C, C fibers. They are either peptidergic versus non-peptidergic. And those were the two classes and that was it. Now with all this very um, detailed molecular profiling by doing things like single cell RNA-seq and 
it actually turns out that there are many more functionally distinct nociceptors, at least probably 12 different classes. And so we can now really find out, are there specific subsets that are specifically growing, say, in the subchondral bone and sprouting and causing the pain there? And then maybe those express trick A, or maybe they don't. And so we can really probably go into that pathway and see exactly where is NGF active and on which subsets of uh, nociceptors. And then we could probably really exploit that to just target that same pathway and that same signaling pathway, but in a little bit a more specific and detailed manner. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful story and hopefully something that will lead to uh, revolutions in the way we treat and manage patients. But I think a critical element along that journey is really understanding the heterogeneity of the disease, the pain experience, and stratifying. Yeah, I agree. So I, I, I'm really worried that this with the whole NGF trick A story that we, we don't want to throw away the, the baby with the bathwater, really. And clearly for the vast majority of people, this, this, this is something that uh, really helped with their pain without causing rapidly progressive osteoarthritis. So I think what we can focus on is to really see, can we characterize something? Is there something about those patients that can give us a signal? And I think we can, actually. We could really find out specifically, maybe they have a specific subset of neurons in a part of their joint that at that point was really important. To me, it's very important that this is a chronic progressive disease and a knee joint early versus mid-stage versus late-stage disease will look very differently from an a neuroplasticity viewpoint too. And so there's, I think there is a critical window where we do not want to mess with the NGF trick A signaling, but all the other times we probably can. And that's what I think we should focus on. And is that the focus in part of what you're planning to work on with the new program grant that you've got, Amory? Uh, yes, absolutely. So one of the things that we do not understand, for example, is where exactly is NGF expressed in the joint and, and the receptors. It's not just the receptors for nerve growth factor are present on neurons, but not just on neurons. Different joint cells can respond to NGF. Chondrocyte cartilage cells can, different cells in the bone can. There's also a very big interest currently. Uh, we haven't talked about that yet, but it's the, the contribution of the immune system to pain. So it turns out that and there, there is an influx of macrophages and other immune cells in the joint with osteoarthritis, but also in the dorsal root ganglia, so in the nervous uh, structures. And then so these immune cells interact with nerves. And so, so these neuroimmune interactions are also something that continuously modify uh, the pain signals and, and can contribute and be pro algesics uh, or pain producing, but they can also try and dampen the pain. And so these things really progress over time. And so that's, that's to me, it's one of the most important things about osteoarthritis. It's not static, the, the, it changes the whole time. And if we can find markers where we can say this particular pain experience, these types of quantitative sensory testing outcomes really tell us 
what stage this person is in. In a mouse, we can do all that now. We are trying to, we are starting to get there. Now we have to find out how we can translate that to a human being. Um, but then we can probably start identifying patients where we should not, say, target nerve growth factor. Yeah, no, it's re really exciting and hopefully lots of revolutions to come in, in this space. Now, I haven't managed time as I typically don't very well. And uh, we're, we're probably running a little bit short on time. But any particularly meaningful insights that I didn't ask about that you think are really exciting that you think people out there with osteoarthritis might like to know before we move on to the next segment? Well, I think what's exciting is that, so I, I have been working on osteoarthritis now for a long time, and I do think that we are entering a new era now, that, that there is really cause for optimism. As a community, clinical and basic researchers together have really, in the past few years, made enormous progress, I think, in understanding what's going on in joints with osteoarthritis, how the pain progresses and, and mechanisms there. So I do think that there is real possibility here for uh, more targeted therapies. And I really think that we are probably not too far off from making real breakthroughs. Superb. It's, gr it's great to hear because I think at the moment, in many instances from a pharmacologic perspective, we're treating this disease with a hammer as opposed to a more precise targeted treatment. Now, what I usually like to do towards the end of the show is close with a few questions to get, again, to know you a little bit better. In the first instance, it's just a rapid fire round with some quick questions about things that interest and appeal to you. So favorite book, yeah, I like to read, but I don't have a favorite book. I read fiction and um, I mean, I have a lot of books and a lot of favorite books. So uh, poetry, I actually read poetry. Superb. Favorite movie? Uh, Baghdad Cafe. Great. It's a road movie. I like road movie. Dog or a cat person? Cat. Favorite quote? It's a quote by Henry David Thoreau. It's actually hanging in my living room and it says... Disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. <laughs> Wonderful. What's your favorite food? Radishes, cucumbers, and oysters. They all happen to be low calorie, but I eat radishes daily. I'm pretty sure if I asked that question a thousand times, I would not get that response again. <laughs> do, you, do you have a bad habit? No, not at all. <laughs> oh, come on. I have no bad habits. Where would you like to go on holiday? I, I'm dreaming of making a, a trip around the world once. I would love to do that. Sounds like a great idea. Now, if you had a superpower, what would it be? Time travel. I would love to time travel. Forwards or backwards? Back. No, I have no interest okay. in going forward at all. You don't, you don't want to know what's going to happen? No, at all. If you could meet anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? Probably a musician like Gustav Mahler or and his wife, Alma. If money were not an issue, what would you be doing? For, for, for my personal use, I know exactly what I would be doing. I would be living in a hotel as opposed to in a house. Like you could see that in these old ladies in old movies. They would, they would sort of, you know, live in, in the Waldorf Astoria or something. It wouldn't have to be that one. But a nice old grand hotel and 
I like the idea of not owning a house and not owning anything. And at the same time, you know, have this space to myself. And that's probably what I would do from, from a purely egocentrical viewpoint. If I were really rich, I would probably then sort of start supporting the arts and things like that. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Now, a couple of closing questions. Why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Well, I think um, I, I think it's very clear that being a scientist is just endlessly fascinating, actually, and specifically this osteoarthritis. I, that's what I've been doing now for so long. I think it's just endlessly fascinating. I find it remarkable that one can do this one's entire life and then on a daily to weekly basis discover new things <laughs> about this. And it's so much fun. To, to learn new things and to, to meet people from all over the world who also have this weird interest in, in something and, and, and one can discuss that and, and, and that's really why. Mm -hmm. Superb. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Well, it, it, in the context of osteoarthritis, I would, we haven't really, we've only talked about new drug development and so, but the one thing that really does work for osteoarthritis is uh, losing weight and exercising. <laughs> and so I would probably put on the billboard, keep moving, uh, because that's something that you really see as, as you know, and uh, I do not myself see patients but all friends and family and as they get older they all call me and they all have osteoarthritis and they have pain and I, I'm really quite surprised actually and, and a lot of my families in Europe and how they are really not aware of the fact that they should and can lose weight and that will help them and they stop walking because it hurts to walk and um, so do your 10,000 steps and keep moving is what I would write on the billboard. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for coming along. It's been a great pleasure to have a chance to chat to you a little bit more and uh, to spend a little bit of time together. Well, thank you. That was fun. I hope to see you in Sydney or you come to Chicago. <laughs> At least in some part of the world when, when we're allowed to travel a little bit more. Yeah, that will be wonderful. Thank you, David. I hope you found the content of this week's podcast recording very helpful in going through how osteoarthritis pain is characterized, the differences between peripheral and central sensitization, some of the changes that are occurring in nerves, and more importantly, some of the treatment options that are being developed to help people with symptoms, hopefully in a more targeted and stratified way. We recognize that there's lots of different opportunities for you to get treatment for pain for your osteoarthritis and don't just rely on pharmacologic options at the moment. We're hoping in the future that we will have better targeted treatments that are safer for your osteoarthritis management. But please bear in mind in the interim, there are lots of options that are available for the management of your osteoarthritis pain. Please don't forget to rate us if you like the show. We really rely upon that to get the word out about the podcast. Thank you again so much for your continued support and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. 
If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.